Well, I will confess to you that I do have my occasional quibbles with the Washington Post editorial department. <laughs> but last month I was just so encouraged to, to read um, a column by one of their staff columnists named Christine Emba, who wrote an opinion piece called Consent is Not Enough, How Our Consent-First Culture Has Left Us Liberated and Miserable. She chronicles the loneliness and disaffection and disillusionment and wistfulness of young adults in a hookup culture. And she kind of comes to this conclusion by asking just a couple of questions. She says, we have all kinds of knowledge about what our bodies do, but we're not asking what they're for. Do they have a telos? What if they're pointing to some meaning beyond bi biology and its needs? And this article has just gone viral. It is so resonating incredibly with younger people longing for something different, some meaning, because the world as it is just isn't working for them. I don't read a lot of poetry, I, I do read some, but this reminded me of the existential wistfulness of the lyrical poet Edna St. Vincent Millay, a poem called Upon This Age, and you may have heard me quote it because I have before. She, she writes, upon this gifted age, in its dark hour, rains from the sky a meteoric shower of facts. They lie unquestioned, uncombined. Wisdom enough to leech us of our ill is daily spun, but there exists no loom to weave it into fabric. That poem might have even more bite today than it did when she wrote it 50 years ago. And now if you're wondering at this point what this can possibly have to do with Easter, I will tell you, as Grizzly Adams always told his friends, bear with me. <laughs> if you get that, you are definitely of a certain age. <laughs> the rest of you can Google it at some point, not now. But seriously, bear with me. The great mystery and central reality of the Bible is that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. Conquering death and the grave, he rose on the third day. And as a result, the kingdom of heaven is open to all believers. St. Paul wrote in Romans 10:9, which we read this morning already, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Believing in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead is much more than just assenting to a belief. It carries with it confidence that God is for you, that he has closed ranks with you, that he is transforming your life, and that he will save you for eternal joy. Thanks be to God. And magnificent as that is, it's too small. 
Because in an even vaster sense, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ reframes not just individual lives, it reframes everything, bringing hope, life, and meaning to every part of human existence. And for the first Christians, the message of Jesus' resurrection was just that vast. First, Jesus' resurrection guaranteed our future physical resurrection. And secondly, it ushered some of that future, that future new life, what will be into the world here and now. It's not just not yet. It's both now and not yet. Many have, however, lost this understanding. Mention salvation today, and almost all Western Christians assume that you simply mean going to heaven when you die. But just a moment's thought in light of the physical resurrection of Jesus reveals that this can't possibly be right. The word salvation means rescue. But what are we ultimately rescued from? One obvious answer is death. But if when we die, all that happens is that our bodies decompose while our souls go off somewhere else. This doesn't mean we've been rescued from death. It simply means that our bodies have died and our souls have escaped. But if God's physical creation is really good, as he himself declared seven times in Genesis 1, and if God reaffirmed that embodied flesh and blood material goodness in Jesus' resurrection, as I believe he did, then to see the death of the body and the escape of the soul as salvation isn't just a little off course and in need of a few subtle modifications. It's actually wrong. It is, however, what most Western Christians actually believe. A good many Easter sermons and hymns, for example, start by assuming that the point of Easter is that it proves the existence of life after death and encourages us to hope for it. And there is that. The problem is, this is combined with a view of life after death in which the specific embodied material element of the resurrection is almost completely ignored. In other words, a view that life after death is a disembodied eternity spent somewhere else. That is precisely not the message that the New Testament draws from Jesus' resurrection. Yes, there is a promise of life after, after the toil of this life. And the word heaven may be an appropriate way of describing where this rest takes place. But this time of rest is simply the prelude to something very different, which will emphatically involve the earth. The renewed earth is where eternity will take place. Just read Revelation 21 and 22. It's where Jesus is making all things new, not all new things. Which is why the New Testament regularly speaks not of going to be where Jesus is, but rather of his glorious appearing here on earth. But even when we get clear about what the New Testament actually says about our future hope, this is still not what the New Testament sees as the whole message of the resurrection of Jesus. There is a rest and there is a hope. Thanks be to God. 
But when the New Testament speaks of Easter, the picture it paints isn't simply about ourselves individually and whatever future world God is going to make when heaven and earth are finally joined together. The New Testament teaches rather that because the resurrection happened as an embodied event within the world, its effects are also to be embodied within the world here and now. In other words, the resurrection is every bit as much about the embodied presence of Christ in the world today as it is about the future hope of resurrection, or restoration. Think for a minute about how important it was to Jesus that he dispel all doubt about his true nature after his resurrection. In Luke 24, 37 through 41, when Jesus appeared to his followers, they were terrified, thinking that he was a ghost. This is from the translation, the message. While they were saying all this, Jesus appeared to them and said, peace be with you. They thought they were seeing a ghost and were scared half to death. He continued with them, don't be upset and, and don't let all these doubting questions take over. Look at my hands, look at my feet. It's really me, touch me, look me over from head to toe. A ghost doesn't have muscle and bone like this. As he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. They still couldn't believe what they were seeing. It was too much, it seemed too good to be true. And then the question I would naturally ask in this situation, do you have anything to eat? <laughs> How did Jesus relieve their fears? By pointing to his real flesh and blood body. And the apostle, as the apostle John said in 1 John 1, 1, that which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. And so a proper grasp of the embodied meaning of the resurrection of Jesus Christ gives us a present embodying, embodied hope that then becomes the basis of all that we do. It brings life, hope, and meaning to every part of human existence. When Redeemer's shared vision to proclaim and promote the gospel, giving ever more time, talent, and treasure to seeking the flourishing of our neighbors is based squarely on that reality. To hope and work for the flourishing of our neighbors in this world is not something else, something extra, something tacked onto the gospel as an afterthought. And to work for that hope in our world is not a distraction from the gospel. It's an essential, vital, and life-giving part of it. What Jesus was promising for the future and doing in the present was not saving souls for a disembodied eternity, but rescuing people from the corruption and decay of the world that presently is. Why? So we can enjoy already in the present the beginnings of the renewal of the entire creation, which is God's ultimate purpose. And so that we can then become colleagues and partners with God in that bigger project. To simply ask what God saves us from is too small a question. The bigger question in light of the resurrection is what does God save us to? 
As long as we see salvation in terms of going to heaven when we die, our work is bound to be seen simply in terms of saving souls for the future. But when we see salvation as the New Testament sees it in terms of God's promised new heavens and new earth and of our promised resurrection to share in that gloriously embodied reality, then the vision and mission of the church expands geometrically. The resurrection of Jesus creates a new paradigm in which the old world will be and is already being redeemed, transformed, and enhanced by the embodied presence of Christ in the world. And these good things, every good endeavor, will make their way mysteriously into eternity. And the understanding above that understanding above all things is that this is what creation was made for in the first place. It's why we learn in Romans 8 that all creation presently groans in the pains of childbirth and eager longing for the revealing of the sons and daughters of God. Human beings from Genesis 1 onward are given the mandate of looking after creation, of bringing order to God's world, and of establishing and maintaining flourishing cultures, and that has never been rescinded. Bishop N.T. Wright says in his book, Surprised by Hope, to think that we are saved for our own private benefit, simply for the restoration of our own relationship with God, as vital as that is, and for our eventual homecoming and peace in heaven, is a little like a kid being given a Frisbee as a present and insisting that, it's for, it's, that since it's for him, he must always and only play with it in private. But of course, you can only do what you're meant to do with the Frisbee when you're playing with other people. And it's only really fun when you get good at it, when it becomes habit. In the same way, our salvation does what it's meant to do when those who've been saved understand that their salvation is not for themselves alone, but for what God now longs to do through them, joining him in his redemptive work of all creation. In other words, it totally connects Sunday to Monday, every part of human existence, our workplaces, our families, our neighborhoods, education, mathematics, science, manufacturing, law, journalism, art, you name it. Bishop Wright again. The message of the resurrection is that this world matters. That the brokenness, injustices, and pains of this present world must now be addressed with the news that healing, justice, and love have won. If Easter means Jesus Christ is only raised in a spiritual sense, then it's only about me and finding passion in my personal spiritual life. But if Jesus Christ is truly risen from the dead, Christianity becomes good news for the whole world. Easter means that in a world where sin, lostness, injustice, violence, and degradation, all of these things are endemic, and God is not prepared to tolerate such things. And we will work, we will work the plan with all the energy of God to implement shalom over them all. So now I want to just circle back to Christine Emba because she's a perfect example of exactly what I'm talking about here. I wondered when I read the article if she was a, a Christian because she actually quotes St. Thomas Aquinas in especially the way that he defines love. 
as seeking the good of the other. And she, she says, the problem is an entire generation has been taught that simple consent is both the floor and the ceiling for deciding to have sex. But what if the ceiling were instead seeking the good of the other? So I was so excited after reading this article that I saw in my podcast subscription that she was being interviewed on one of my favorite podcasts this week. So I obviously listened to it. And it's, by the way, it's not a Christian uh, podcast. But when she was asked, where are you getting this stuff? <laughs> she literally was asked that. She was able to say, well, I'm a Christian. And this is what the Bible teaches. The next question was, tell me more. Turns out that she has spent years in journalism perfecting a craft, doing exactly what Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah did in Daniel 1-4, learning the language and the literature of the Babylonians. So that now she has the credibility, the dominion, to start a vitally important conversation that has heretofore been non-existent in many miserable and actually traumatized young adults, writing in a language that they understand. She's using her dominion to promote the gospel, to promote the gospel, and, and when I say promote the gospel, what I mean is making the gospel plausible, because we don't have a truth problem in Christianity, we have a plausibility problem. So promoting the gospel and seeking the good, the flourishing of her neighbors. She's leaning into the reality that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ reframes not just individual lives. It reframes everything, bringing hope, life, and meaning to every part of human existence. Now, most of us don't have the dominion that she does, but we all have some. We all have some dominion in the world. And the question is, how will we use that to embody that meaning this time tomorrow morning? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.